This podcast is a proud member of the Paranormality Podcast Network. safe in the familiar, hiding behind the guard towers of our lives in white picket fences, symmetrically sectioned off suburban houses, with two parent dynamics ushering us into the machine of modern society, where we can interact with common persons and become the almighty productive citizen all our ancestors wanted us to be, right? The productive citizen who looks sidelong with suspicion at the other, the outsider, the charge against our norms. But is this defensive mechanism a holdover from some bygone tribal era when life was more fragile and the stability of the group was bent on similarity, on the instantaneous acknowledgement of friend versus foe. There is this common saying among social psychologists that states, we only learn things from the people that are different from ourselves, yet it's human nature to cling to those that are the same. Does that mean we crave close-mindedness or stability? Is there danger in the other, or is the fear that, in challenging the provincial, we are forced to evaluate our own values? Is the fortress of mirrors a palace or a dungeon? In this week's episode, we'll engage the other and analyze our core values, even if it drains us bloodless and pale. As always, I'm Rob Basurja, and joining me are my co-hosts, Devin Shepard and David B. Jacobs, and we are Cadaver Dogs. How's it going today, guys? Oof, that was a heavy intro. I'm excited to get into this today. I'm Devin Shepard. I'm a writer, director, and producer. Um, most recently, you can see my feature film, A Nightmare Wakes, which I produced and is now on Shudder. You can also listen to my horror sci-fi podcast, Cryptids, available wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm David. I'm a writer, director, script supervisor, and horror addict. You can check out mine and Devin's short film, One Last Call, on YouTube. And I'm Rob Basurcha. I'm the owner and runner of Whimsy Productions, LLC. And I'm also a grip for Local 52 in the New York City area. Before we get started, please check us out on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Our account is Cadaver Dogs Pod. So today we have some really interesting movies that come from a particular era that was around just before all of us uh, came to life. So to start us off is David Jacobs. What's our first film? Welcome to Fright Night. Fright Night is written and directed by Tom Holland, not that Tom Holland, and follows local teen Charlie Brewster, who discovers that his new neighbor is actually a vampire. His friends and police don't believe him, so Charlie must instead turn to the legendary Hollywood vampire killer Peter Cushing, I mean, Vincent Price, I mean, Peter Vincent, but will the washed-up actor help Charlie slay the vampire menace, or will he buckle beneath his own fear? Wow. You know, I, I love this movie. Um, I watched it when I was like probably six or seven with my dad and I was talking to my grandmother the other day and she said it's like one of the best horror movies ever made. What are your two initial thoughts? This is the first time I've seen this film. Actually, I saw I saw the remake um, when it first came out. I know. I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) And I only watched the remake for Anton Yelchin, I have to say. But I did love the remake and I liked this one um, just as much. I think it it was a very fun film and refreshing film to watch yeah well i think that's better because i didn't like the remake nearly as much but at least like your expectations were surpassed by going back in time rather than mine where i was like oh i love the first movie let me rewatch let me watch this remake and then it was just like oh it was just like a balloon just being like (laughs) they're just like yeah slowly losing air like the whole time i watched (laughs) it i never saw the remake every time like i keep meaning to because i've heard it's not bad and i keep being like oh i should should watch the remake of Fright Night. And then I go and I say, I'm going to watch the original again because it's amazing and just fantastic and perfect. <laughs> David, well, um, I don't know. Colin Farrell just has funny eyebrows. It's hard to take him seriously. That's the thing you take away from that movie? <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the thing I take away from every Colin Farrell movie where he's not funny. <laughs> Have you seen Eugene Levy lately? No. <laughs> 
Rob's face is just like so I shocked right now. Does not get the reference. <laughs> I don't get the reference. Not at horror. All. So, <laughs> yeah. what is this world outside of horror? <laughs> I don't understand anything that doesn't have blood. <laughs> um, but David, was this one of your favorite movies? Because this was something that you've been pushing on me for a while. I feel like I say that every time, every episode. I'm like, this is a movie David's asked me to watch a million times, and I haven't seen it yet. It's up there. I love this movie so much. I think it's ridiculously fun. I watched both of our movies last week, and I've been just been listening to their soundtracks on repeat all week long because... I don't know. There's something about 80s horror. This movie came out, did we say that, 1985? And uh, the premise of this movie is that uh, it's Charlie Brewster is uh, the son of a single-parent home, and he's always hanging out with his girlfriend, uh, Amy, and he likes to spy on his neighbors with binoculars. So when... <laughs> In, in this in this great first scene that I'm sure you two will disagree with me that it's great, uh, he's kind of pressuring his girlfriend to sleep with him, and then he backs off, and then she's like she relents, but he gets uh, distracted by his neighbor who's uh, undressing a woman and about to bite her in the neck, and he goes, "Oh my god, my neighbor's a vampire," because he's watching uh, Peter Vincent on the TV at the same time, who's this like made up vampire killer um, <laughs> of the time, this Van Helsing. <laughs> B-horror icon, which is awesome. After Vincent Price, mostly, whom I love and is my horror icon. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Tom Holland wrote the role for Vincent Price. Did he? Which I'm so happy Vincent Price didn't do it, because I think what the actor, whose name is Roddy McDowell, really did this unique spin on Vincent Price, and I think made him a little more comedic, that really, really works with the tone of the film. Yeah, in talking about McDowell specifically decided not to play it as Vincent Price, although Mm -hmm. Vincent Price still comes through, he said, I think this guy is a much worse actor than Price was. Which was such a brilliant (laughs) choice, I think, (laughs) for sure. Yeah, I, I think that was a big part of it was, I mean, he did well in the movie, but he definitely like played up the ham when he oh, was yeah. doing these uh, uh, oh, yeah. Peter Vincent type things. yeah. All the cast of this are amazing. Holland himself used to be an actor, and he insisted on two weeks of rehearsal going mm. into this. Really? Which is hard to get, especially for a first-time director, especially because it's a horror movie. Yeah. But I think right. it really shows that you can tell that these guys have rehearsed and know what they're doing. Uh, he, he made them all write biographies. I think that's where Chris Sarandon suggested that his vampire should always be eating apples. Right. Yeah. I thought that was such an interesting and unique thing. Um, and I have questions about that because can vampires actually eat food? I know we wanted to get a little bit into the vampire lore about the films that we're discussing today, but can they eat food? Uh, well, I think it changes from, uh, iteration iteration because in a lot of them they get sick if they ingest anything else but in some of them they could just eat it and it just doesn't do anything to them. right yeah i think it's the latter i know sarandon based it off a fruit bat and that's why he, where he got the idea from that's what i thought and i think that has some other implications that we'll get into in a little bit oh it definitely it's does particular, a fruit bat yeah <laughs> and fright night actually sticks to the vampire lore pretty strictly it has a few of its own takes like I really like this idea that the crosses only work if you have faith. Yes. Yeah. That and was a great there's, addition. There's almost an implication in there that it's not Christian iconography specifically. Like, I wonder if you had like Star of David or something and just had faith. I wonder if that would also work. They never try it. though. That's interesting. I wonder. There's a lot of plays on that. What do you think of inviting yourself in? That was the one that I took away. That was a little bit different, that once you invite the vampire in, it can always come back. Now, is that standard among them, or does it like have a time? It varies. Buffy has that same thing, but I think because how that scene plays out is that he turns to mom and he's like, oh, and I'll be stopping by any time I want, if that's okay with you. And she's like, yes, that's okay with me because she's like in love with him and she wants to bang him. Everyone wants to bang him. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and I think she says <laughs> she hopes that he is not gay. Um, so wait, you, you took- Does she say that? <laughs> yeah, she does. Yeah, she does. Or she says, um, she says, well, with my luck, he's probably gay. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, he definitely has to be like a gay-ish character, right? He like has the role of it because he shows up. He's this guy with a partner next door and he's His like- quote, quote, roommate yeah yeah his his roommate right who takes care of him puts him to bed wakes him up that kind of thing his caretaker whatever it is and then that's what attracts everyone's attention who are these two weird guys who live together that's just his special friend 
they like really dance around the bush, which I think is common of this era, right? Because this came out during the Reagan era. And uh, should we get into the, the AIDS epidemic? Yeah, yeah. This is around that time where there was a real push back to traditional family values, right? Right. It was kind of causing the gay community to, it came in this uproar where it was, it was no longer safe to be promiscuous and be running around and partying along with everyone, not just the gay community, but it hit them in particular. So there was this push to traditional family values, which is interesting in this film because we see an untraditional family structure in Charlie Brewster with his single parent. And then when she's drawn to the traditional structure of the other guy who kind of takes on two roles, I think of this, he takes on the role of like the father and then he also takes on the role of like the other, like the queer person. Who are you talking about in particular there? I'm talking about the vampire. What's his name? Jerry Dandridge. Jerry Dandridge, right. Played wonderfully by Chris Sarandon. Oh my God. Chris Sarandon, Ooh. yeah. People will remember was also in Dog Day Afternoon playing the trans character. So he has a, he, he's been, he's been playing roles like this a lot. Talk about a good movie. Dog, Dog Day. Day Afternoon. Friday Night or Dog Absolutely. Day Afternoon. <laughs> well, I, I mean, we're already talking about the good movie, but Dog Day Afternoon, wow. Yeah. See, there's a few movies I watch that aren't horror, like three. <laughs> That's one of the three I've seen. <laughs> no, I like that you brought up Dog Day, though, because we have to remember Dog Day was before this, and that was a movie that talked about um, LGBTQIA plus characters um, very, very early on. And then I think there were a few other films in the 70s that did talk about that community. But then in the 80s, there was such a pushback. I think what you were saying, Rob, when Reaganism came to be a little more traditional family values, but then also when AIDS came, people became like scared of gay people, essentially. Am I wrong to say that? No, no. No, I that's completely that... accurate. That is absolutely true. And this movie, I think, really, really plays into it. Dandridge, I, I read him as bisexual, uh, mm. but he's also just very promiscuous. He has prostitutes over. He engages with Amy, but then he's also metaphorically engaging with Evil Ed. He is most mm -hmm. likely having a thing with Billy Cole, mm -hmm. his uh, roommate. Tom Holland likes to frame other people at crotch height with Dandridge <laughs> to like show the blowjob <laughs> position. <laughs> he does that with Cole. He does that with the main guy, with Brewster. He does that with Evil Ed. Like everyone's always at crotch height. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little about that scene with Evil Ed when he is alert, so like bad. that siren singing song mm -hmm. when he goes into Dandridge's cloak. And he says, I, I know what you're like. I know who you are. Stating that they're the same. Whatever this thing is between them is going on. And that's the subtext of the film. Because in the reality of the film, it's just that I know that you're being bullied, right? Which Evil Ed is being bullied. Because we know that Brewster inadvertently bullies him because Evil Ed's weird. And that even when he's asking about vampires in the beginning, he's like, listen, man, are you making fun of me? And then he has that ridiculous iconic laugh, which by the mm -hmm. beginning of the film really bothered me. But by the end, I couldn't get enough of it. <laughs> he's my favorite character because I like hated him. But now I think he's great by the end of it as he's so weird. So it, it seems like the subtext is bringing him into this like I don't know, counterculture, I'm going to call it this other culture of like male male affection, I guess, when he takes him under his wing. Right. And again, there's this kind of like father figure, but there's this alternative father figure. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely an alternative father figure. Right. And I think it's it's interesting that they never explicitly say what Evil Ed is being teased for. We get a little bit of it because he likes dark stuff. But I mean, we can also assume that perhaps it is because he is not a straight guy. And so when uh, Jerry comes and says, you know, they won't pick on you anymore, beat you up, let me take you under my wing, like you just said, Rob. Yeah, it, it, it can also be assumed that he means, like, come out of the closet, like, come join me, join my family where you're accepted to be this other person, be a vampire with me, because you'll be accepted in this community. And with that, this idea of acceptance does give the sense of, of a fatherly figure. Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting that you guys read that scene as a, a father figure scene, because... That, that's not something I'd consider. I, I definitely see where you're coming from with that. I saw it more as two ways, either a seduction mm. or an assault or somewhere in between. Right. Um, but we could view it as like a pederastic relationship. He's his mentor as well as what? his lover. Pederastic. Pederasty was the ancient Greeks when uh, they, would, they would be your teacher in return for sexual favors. There's also a calm practice like that with like samurai times. It's called That's pederasty. Yeah, it is fucked up. 
but it was very common. Actually, Socrates was against it. So point one for Socrates. <laughs> um, right? Socrates, my bro here, right? Yeah. Let's get his poster on my wall. So I, it could have been kind of a pederastic relationship as well. But where I'm, I'm, I think this could be a little problematic here is like, where do you see the sexualness in that relationship? Is it through your own assumptions that that relationship would be sexual? Because I think a way to view that is just two gay men who don't need to have that sexual relationship, but have a father and son relationship. Yeah. Right. So I think for me, a lot of it is that uh, you, you guys can tell me if you agree with this or not, but I see that vampires in general tend to represent a sexual desire mm-hmm. that right. even going back to Bram Stoker's Dracula, the way I interpret that storyline is as a fear of this foreigner who's going to come and rape our women. And mm-hmm. the vampire bite itself is a sexual act, which is usually non-consensual. Mm-hmm. Even when it is, there's usually a hypnotic quality to it. Right. Dandridge also hypnotizes people throughout this movie. Mm-hmm. Dracula is a weird one because it's told through the male perspective. So the fear is not so much, oh, we have to protect our women because they're getting raped. It's, oh, we have to protect our women because they're going to really enjoy this and they're just going to become sexually promiscuous. Right. It's weird. Yeah, that, that, does, that does happen a little bit in this. But I, I'd like to counter that by saying the issue with the vampires, because it's hypnotic, it takes on a consensual air. Like, remember, the vampire cannot enter your house unless you invite it in. Mm. It hypnotizes you. It's a luring sexual um, eroticism that you're drawn to. Yes, but that's a false consent. That's sort not of. really consent. Right, right. In the re- the subtext is that it it's this alluring thing you're into. In the in the reality of the movie, you're hypnotized. But I mean, like, is that even a? It's about a vampire. Like, it's kind of hard to have that conversation about a fantastical creature, right? But the subtext is that you're drawn to these deviant desires. Right, exactly. But so Evil Ed, he he's not hypnotized in that scene. He willingly goes to Jerry. Yes, that that's true. Whereas Amy Definitely. is absolutely hypnotized. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a whole problematic scene <laughs> right yeah. there. I mean, she's like, what? The actress was 27-ish when um, she was portraying that role. And I think he was 42. Um, but it doesn't matter because in the script, she's like 16 and he's still 42. <laughs> right, right. So is that. Yes. But I'm still on the Amy. side that that wasn't a sexual thing, though. I, and I think because of what you guys were just saying, because it wasn't uh, hypnotized and like he was willingly going with him. Right. But here's the problem with that, Devin, because is Jerry actually having sex with anyone in this movie or is he just biting them? And the bite is what's sexualized. I think the bite is sexualized. So I think in that way, with Evil Ed, it's sexual. But then we do have this whole scene when he's with the female character amy on the dance floor and puts his hand up her skirt and gyrates and it does it's very very sexual in a physical way right there is a sexual energy to everything that jerry does pretty much yeah and i think it's worth noting that with ed even though he takes dandridge's hand we moments later hear him scream right Mm mm-hmm in a dark alleyway, which is yeah, yeah. possibly showing their depiction of rape during that time. Right. And right. Charlie declares, well, no vampire's going to want him anyway. I'll probably give him blood poisoning. Yes. Mm. <laughs> which is just, okay, well. <laughs> that's, yeah, that uh, is That's true. a little uh, messed up right there. <laughs> so are, are you comparing that directly to AIDS then? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So do we all read Dandridge as LGBT? And do we all read Ed as LGBT? 100% for me, yeah. Yeah, I also think that um, if you're going to look at it through this lens, which might, I think we should, Brewster is drawn to him in a way. Oh, yeah. That's interesting, yeah. Right? And I think Brewster is just drawn to something other than like the traditional relationship, even at the end of the movie, because every time he notices something supernatural, which is taking on is just an allegory for the other in this movie. Mm-hmm. He's about to get it with his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. The thing that he's supposed to be <laughs> after that he pretends he's after. But then even at the end, it's aliens, right? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I weirdly never considered Brewster as questioning his sexuality. I'd for so long interpreted as just he's like in the subtext and being like, there's a gay man next door. I've got to kill this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I, in researching for this episode, I looked up all these interpretations and saw people breaking down how Brewster himself is questioning his sexuality. I'm just like, oh yeah, that's definitely in there. 
It, right. I, I think the first scene almost doesn't make sense without it. It's like, wh- why does he suddenly stop wanting to be sexual with Amy when he's so toxically demanding it until she gives in? Right, and it, it kind of gets into what you're saying, David, where he has a desire to kill this vampire if it's a representation of his own questioning. Is he then looking to kill that side of himself? I think so. Yeah. That's kind of interesting. I think no matter what, if he's like questioning or not it is a journey of sexuality for him when it comes to just like opening up himself to having sex with his girlfriend or figuring out you know if he's ready she's also figuring out if she's ready i think a lot of this is a coming of age story of sexuality in itself whether or not you're gay or straight and Mm. as problematic as her storyline is it is also an awakening for her as well Yes, yes exactly um, and that's it what is. I really enjoyed about this because I thought it would be a little problematic on her side with the way that they were showing their sexual relationship. But I actually really like her sexual journey throughout this. I think it, it did a really good job of showing how a woman can um, have sexual desires, but also be f- having this internal fight of like, I'm a woman. I want to be treated. I want to be respected. But I also need to, I have a sexual desire. I want to do this. Is it right? Is it wrong? And like that whole journey that she had throughout the film was really exciting to watch. It's also interesting that Charlie is like defending his atypical uh, family structure and that he, once the neighbor moves in and tries to engage with his mother, then he's like, oh, I got to shut this down. Mm. We're fine. Don't invade us with this like father figure, this like idealist, hypersexualized, masculine vibe you know so how do you guys read the peter vincent character so peter vincent is like the other father figure in this movie right yeah mm-hmm. so he's the alternative right he he's the better one he he's uh he's the one who purges you of these like evil desires but at the same time he takes on the persona of like less hyper masculine so mm-hmm. there really is this like kind of tipping point of like you know this, this emulsification of all these different tropes of masculinity that are being flipped Right, it all becomes tops or turvy. Like mm-hmm. he's like, I don't want an atypical family structure, but I also don't want a hyper masculine mentor. And knowing that both Brewster and Ed have LGBT DNA, I find it interesting that they really bond over their love for this gay actor. If you read him as gay, if you read him as gay, and I, I think the 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 issue is saying like reading him as gay. That's the, the wrong way to be looking at this. I think like yes. That's well. That's I. I, I not wouldn't necessarily... read him as gay. Hmm. What's that? I wouldn't necessarily read him as gay, but I would read him as like less masculine than. And I think that's the like... other father figure coming in. But you can't be gay and be masculine, and I think that's something important. And I think like to what you're saying, Rob. Maybe the question isn't whether or not he's looking up to um a, a queer father, but more so of like he's questioning what masculinity means to him and how masculine or unmasculine is his idol yes yeah no i like I, I, I think i think i completely agree with you because i think there's less evidence to support that peter vincent's character might be queer rather than the vampire who mm-hmm. takes yeah. on the, this more traditional masculine hypersexual role you know right and he himself yeah. doesn't have a traditional life right he's older he lives by himself he's still you know He's definitely not a wealthy man. He's very poor. He couldn't make his rent, so he got evicted. He's choosing his career on television over anything else in his life. It doesn't even look like he's having friends. He's hanging out with 16-year-olds on the weekend. <laughs> like, Yeah, he was hanging out. That's a little <laughs> odd. I like that. So um, let's switch gears a little bit. What do you guys think about Evil Ed's death scene, which I think is one of the coolest scenes in any film? It's so heartfelt, and it's just... It's so sad. It's such a great transformation scene, Yeah, just to get out of the way, the transformation is freaking amazing. Um, I think one of the... The the effects on this were done by the Ghostbusters team, and Mm -hmm. one of them was a prodigy of Rick Baker and had worked on American Werewolf in London. And that guy came into this and was like, I'm going to outdo Rick Baker now. <laughs> and it's up to you whether or not you think he did, but it's so freaking great. <laughs> well, and I read or heard somewhere, I don't know, in, in my research that this was the first film to have a million dollar budget for special effects. Um nice. so he had so much room to just play. <laughs> yeah. There were some great kill scenes too. Aside from that, when they kill Jerry's partner and he melts 
the skull <laughs> falls out. That oh was so. My God. What is up with that? Okay, what, is he a vampire? Is he? Yeah. What is what? what? He's like a Frankenstein, right? It's never explained because he just walks around in the daylight. What's going on with that? Yeah, he's most likely. I, I've heard a few interpretations of it. Uh, Tom Holland, when asked, just like shrugged his shoulders, like I don't know. <laughs> I've heard he's a half vampire. I've heard he is a Frankenstein-like monster. He might be a ghoul. He might be a golem. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's so cool. <laughs> I also love the vampire bat that Jerry turns into mm-hmm. and how at the end he explodes and turns into the skeleton. That is so awesome. It's great. Oh. So many great things. And we cannot go on to talk about special effects without talking about the makeup on Amy at the end. With her yeah, awesome. jaw and her mouth being enlarged. Every interpretation of vampire is different in the characters. And it's so cool yes. to see that variety of vampire. They added that in because they realized that the last scene needed something scarier. So they just added this giant mouthpiece without even bothering to justify it. But I think it works because they they have all these different levels of transformation within them uh, that they Mm -hmm. they that sometimes Jerry's uh, hands fingers get really long with these long fingernails mm-hmm. uh, which is also a gay st- I, I know that like we shouldn't judge whether characters are gay off gay stereotypes I'm just it's the 80s and that is how they gay code characters in the 80s by using stereotypes yeah and some of them are really outdated stereotypes um, he also has skin condition which I think again reminds me of AIDS yeah, I want to go back to the the evil Ed death scene too because I agree it was yes. um, a really really beautiful transformation scene, but it went on for so long and was so harrowing and hard to watch. And I'm sitting there thinking all these thoughts about it, and and knowing that David wanted to talk about AIDS in this episode and how it relates to these two films, I could almost see that death scene as friends watching their friends suffer and die from this disease at that time yes i see it as exactly that and i think it's so it's it's so interesting because in the beginning of the movie you kind of hate him Mm -hmm. then as it goes on it starts to peel back the layers and you realize he's bullied you realize that he's he's like he's weird but they call him evil and he doesn't like that he's like why are you calling me evil why do you think i'm evil (laughs) i do think it's worth noting that uh even though I said that thing about how uh, I think the way they interpret faith might be able to translate to other faiths other than Christianity, mm-hmm. right. it is interesting that Christianity is used as a weapon against these vampires who can be compared as a metaphor for homosexuality. That a cross is a weapon against them, holy water is a weapon against them, the pencil yeah. through the hand is like a crucifixion. Oh, oh, that yeah. that definitely was like a crucifixion. Yeah, there's a lot of theological references in this movie. At the end, when they explode, oh, yeah. um, Jerry. I mean, that's like how do you vanquish evil by bringing it to the light? You know, oh, yeah, yeah, that whole thing. Yeah, and Jerry has the stained glass window. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, like but yeah. but a lot of those like that's a retread of older vampire themes. I mean, this is not the first movie to do theological theological yeah. themes in in these. I mean, Bram Stoker's Dracula the book does it. Sure, but I think like. The question of like, why do you choose to do a vampire movie during this era? And yeah. why you choose vampires in particular, I think, have a reflection on what's going on in that era at that time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I also just think that a lot of these metaphors are baked into the myth of the vampire in general. Mm. That right. when you read the vampire bite as a sexual metaphor, most vampires are bisexual. Dracula actually specifically does not attack men, so I think Brab Stoker very much intended this and did not consider it bisexual, which is why when Dracula wants to go after a man, he sends his women to do it instead. To that point, in the beginning, Jerry says he doesn't want to kill Brewster. He's giving him a choice. Interesting. Right? And why do you think that is? It's because Brewster is neither a woman nor nor out in the open a bi-curious character. Oh, Yeah. Oh, right? so you're saying that he has the opportunity there to come out. Yeah, yeah, because he fights it, right? That's why. But yeah. Jerry does give him the choice in the beginning. I'm going to bring us right here to hear a word from our new sponsor. If you are interested in promoting on the show, please reach out to us at cadaverdogspodcast at gmail.com. Now here's a word from our new sponsor. I'm Poltergeist, and I make inappropriate songs about horror movies. So basically, I just came to see some naked D's and A's for free. Take a peek, take a key, 12 cabins, 12 vacancies, 12 bodies, mother pray for me, I might go psycho occasionally, one body too many pray for me, cause we 
chapter, just chapter after chapter after chapter. Massacre, make the Ripper look like an amateur ambassador of the slashers. Michael! Lord of the dead, Lord of the dead, you can wake up in the coroner's bed. This is the hour for mourning and dread, drain of the blood that was stored in his head. All of the apologies that you can muster from your dread won't protect you on your bed. Nothing will from Pumpkinhead. Not a dream, baby. This ain't Halloween, baby. When I'm on the scene, this is what we call a scream, baby. Subscribe on YouTube at Poltergeist OD. Follow me on Instagram and the Slasher app at Poltergeist underscore OD. And we're back. Rob? So on this idea of the vampire bite, I think it's a good way to segue to our second film, which is also a vampire movie and came out two years later. So Devin, why don't you kick us off on this one? Sure. So our second film is the 1987 film, The Lost Boys, directed by Joel Schumacher, written by Janice Fisher, Jeffrey Boehm, and James Jeremias. So Michael, Sam, and their mother Lucy move in with their grandfather in the town of Santa Carla, but the picturesque seaside city has a dark underbelly. A gang of motorcycle riding hooligans who are extremely 80s cool. Take a liking to Michael. Sam notices his brother begin to change. He wears sunglasses all day. He stays out late. He gets the ability to fly. <laughs> Could his brother, in fact, be a creature of the night, making his new gang of friends vampires? Yeah, it's true. His brother does become a shit-sucking vampire. <laughs> Wait till mom finds out, buddy. <laughs> this movie has the fucking best one-liners. I, I was yes. dying laughing the whole time. It's such it's a so fun great. movie. Oh my god, I have such a good quote right here. I gotta I got bring it up real fast. It is, uh, flies and the undead go together like bullets and guns. <laughs> you you said that exactly like Corey Feldman. That was amazing. Corey Feldman's awesome. Yeah, you know Can what you they did. Can you just do a Corey Feldman voice for the rest of this? Uh, you episode? want me to do a Corey Feldman voice for the rest of the podcast? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no way. <laughs> you, you know what's so funny about it? He like was doing the role, and then um, Joel Shoemaker was like, "Listen," and he gave. I think it was like Arnold Schwarzenegger movie and a Stallone movie. It was like combine them. That really? Was <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I saw that, that too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so that's not his voice changing? That's just, that's his, that's his actual acting? That's his acting, yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. Schumacher just basically directed the ham it up. <laughs> exactly, which was such a good decision. Ham it up, don't ham it up. Oh, yes. that's good. That's, <laughs> that's a little Corey Ham joke. Uh, uh, you got me. That was a good one. Thank you. Any other initial thoughts other than just amazing one-liners that we're going to be throwing out through the rest of this? It's interesting because when I was a kid, I didn't like it. I was like, hmm. what, what is this weird movie that you're making me watch? So, I mean, part of why I really wanted to do this episode is because I just wanted an excuse to rewatch it and give it another shot. <laughs> and my taste has changed a lot over the years, and now I freaking love cheesy, ridiculous stuff. And I totally understand why I didn't like it in high school, but also I love this, and it's brilliant. <laughs> That's so weird to me that you said that you didn't like it as a kid, because, like, th this was my first time watching it. I know, I know, I'm so bad. But... It was a kid's movie. Like, everything about this was like a family film to me. I was like, it's funny, but it's a little scary, but it's safe. And then at the end, like, the morals are that, like, family loves each other and straight up just, like, a movie that my dad would probably take me to go to the theater and see. But with more sexiness. A little more sexiness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But this is reminiscent of Leprechaun in that the initial script was mm. supposed to be really kid-friendly. It was supposed to actually be directed by the same director as The Goonies. Then Joe Shoemaker was like, no way. We're going to change everything. And then everyone liked it a lot more. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. So did he yeah. add in the like extreme sex? Like, oh my God, that sex scene was so 80s. Just like literally like smooth jazz, <laughs> blowing curtains in the wind, like barebacked lady. So I'm not sure if Jill Shoebaker explicitly asked them to add that scene, but this might enlighten you. The initial script had eight-year-olds. So had eight-year-olds? It was eight, though all the characters were eight years old. So oh. I think it was playing much more into the Peter Pan mythos. Lost Boys, obviously, the title is a reference to Peter Pan, that mm -hmm. they never grow old. Yeah, which they don't, being vampires. They don't. Right? Yeah. Right. You'll never grow old, you'll never die, but you must feed. Love yeah, that line. Yeah. So what do you think <laughs> of the star character? She's a really interesting one. She is the only female vampire in the movie. 
And she's what allures Michael. By the way, Michael is said over a hundred times in this movie that only runs for 97 <laughs> minutes. So if you forget his name, shame on you. Uh, so she allures Michael to this group of guys. And then he, <laughs> that scene's actually awesome. They give him rice and he thinks it's maggots. <laughs> oh, another little tidbit that I heard on YouTube today. Uh, the maggots weren't moving that much when they handed it to him. So they squirted a little lemon on them. And it yeah. That's the thing. Uh, so he drinks Michael's blood, or what he thinks is Michael's blood. By the way, heavy spoilers. He thinks it's Michael's blood, and then things start changing. He starts wearing glasses at night. Um, he actually becomes a little less interested in Star and starts hanging out with Michael and mm-hmm. the boys more. And I know, David, you want to talk about this train scene. What about this train scene makes it so erotic? Because even Kiefer Sutherland, who's the main vampire in this movie, said there's a little homoeroticism in the train scene. Yeah. How do you describe? I feel like it's hard to put it into specific words. It's more of just one of those things where when you see it, you know it. <laughs> that there right? is this. What specifically happens that is homoerotic? It's just, it's in the performance, it's in the lighting. If you don't remember the scene, Kiefer Sutherland and his vampires all start jumping off the bridge, and he's like, You should follow us, Michael. And Michael's like, What the fuck? Why am I gonna jump off a bridge? Then he sees they're still just like hanging there. It almost plays to your expectation because you know they can fly, so you're expecting to just be flying, but they're just hanging off the bridge. <laughs> Michael's like, Okay, if, if everyone jumped off a bridge, then I will too. <laughs> then he just climbs down with them, and then they all just that's start letting not, go. That's not how he does it. He's actually super scared, and there's a lot of fog. There's this like, foggy mist under the bridge, so when they jump, he thinks they just fell. But then he hears them, and he looks closer, and they're hanging. Right. So he, he very carefully hops down, grabs onto the bar, so he's hanging. And then... Yeah. The train starts going overhead, and it's shaking it, and it's shaking. It's a harrowing scene. It's really great. And the train is laughing into a tunnel. Unfortunately, oh my god, David! (laughs) Didn't it come out of a tunnel? So there is something. I I think the sexual moment there is when Kiefer Sutherland and the guy who plays Michael are staring at each other in Mm -hmm. the eyes. And surrounded by mist and this vibrating train is above them and then through his powers the vampire played by Kiefer Sutherland whispers in Michael's head right in a very sexual way of like let go Michael let go (laughs) I think that's what makes it so sexual it does so all right let me ruin it for you there was a chance that Ben Stiller was going to play that part oh (laughs) Oh, oh no, no no! You gotta have Kiefer Sutherland. The vampire's name is David. Kiefer Sutherland is brilliant in it. This movie actually heavily inspired Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, both the way that their faces transform was a direct inspiration on how mm-hmm. Buffy the Vampires have that same sort of transformation. David is clearly where Spike came from. Oh yeah, in Buffy. yeah. Uh, J- Josh Whedon actually stated. He just based him off him. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> so speaking on the transformation, which Buffy took this also directly from this movie, and Fright Night does this too. When they turn to their true form, they're really scary looking. They're like partially bat, mm-hmm. right? And then they switch back to this imitation of people. What's more interesting about the Lost Boys is that they're not very good at imitating people, right? Because when they imitate society, they're still a counterculture. And the whole, the whole first like 10, 15 minutes of the movie is basically them walking from place to place getting kicked out. Like, they're just not accepted by society. They really drill that into your head. And then Michael, who also comes from a one-parent home, right? That's a theme between these two films. Yes. Is drawn to these guys. Yes. This counterculture group that are kicked out of society, right? But mm-hmm. he's he knows that he's kind of one of them. So do you read Michael as gay himself? Because I know a lot of people have interpreted Michael as a gay man. And I do see that. And I think that's in there. I also kind of see him as a straight man who contracted AIDS. Yeah, I agree with the latter because I think I definitely agree with everyone that the Lost Boys are queer. But I I, I agree, David. I think Michael is a straight man who contracts AIDS. And I think that's what makes this film so unique in that sense. I I think you could view it as either ways. But I I think what's more, what's non-negotiable is that uh, they are... They represent the otherness, a type of mm-hmm. counterculture that is not accepted by society. And this causes problems. Right. But not yeah, only sure. that, what makes it a problem the most is when Max, who actually turns out, major spoiler, turns out being the head of the vampires, 
tries to end that counterculture by bridging them into the traditional family structure. And that's what causes the friction in the movie. Because he wants to marry... Lucy, the mother. Lucy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think that's what causes the problem. It's not only that counterculture is not accepted by society, which is an idea that is played with a lot. It's that you can't force it to be something else. It's going to cause a lot of problems. Yeah. And it's interesting because Max, even though he is the main villain and is the quote unquote father of the Lost Boys, if they're the Lost Boys, you could also read Michael and Sam as Lost Boys, but he is the father of the vampires and but he himself is not really part of the counterculture he's more of just like this boring suburban white dude right exactly that's my point he's not part of the counterculture he's yeah that's why he's the main villain but i do have to disagree with you i don't think you can really uh view uh michael and sam as the lost boys because the lost boys are obviously the ones who don't age i mean that's the whole idea the other one is like eh. that's such a stretch to call i i heard other people say that and that's just obviously wrong Sorry, guys. Can I quickly argue how they could be considered the Lost Boys? Sure. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Cool. So a really good title can refer to multiple things within a movie. And while clearly the vampires themselves can be seen as Lost Boys, they do literally never age. Michael and Sam are also in a way as lost. They are literally moved to a different location. Their father has been removed from the situation. And they are trying to find their place in the world. Michael may be questioning his sexuality, maybe getting AIDS, whatever. He is becoming a vampire. He is becoming more distant from his family. Sam is trying to pull him back in, but Sam is also growing more distant from his mother. He's lying to her. You can talk about how the Frog Brothers are brought into this as well, that they are also distant from their parents. They work at the store they are basically adults themselves already Mm -hmm. and all of these people are lost and they are in search of a family before they eventually realize that they've had their family all along and they just need to love each other that they they are lost but they are eventually found that's interesting that you you bring up the frog brothers as part of that family because yeah at the end they're there they're having dinner and they're in that final scene when everyone's hugging they're part of that family now I didn't think about it that way. Hmm. I mean, I think that's a loose interpretation because what does it mean to be a lost boy? Right. So maybe a lesson too is like, I I hear what you're saying, David, that Michael and Sam could be the lost boys because they're literally out of water right now, right? They're out of place. They've moved to a new town. But there's so much love in that family. I mean, from the very first scene, Sam and Michael are like, it's so great to see that relationship, that brotherly relationship. And Sam cares so much about his brother that like he's doing everything that he can to save his brother from becoming a full vampire. (laughs) Yes. Even when he calls him a (laughs) shit-sucking vampire. (laughs) Well, that's it. It's not immediate. It's his arc throughout the movie that his immediate reaction to Michael being a vampire is like just complete disgust. It's it's almost a recurring joke that characters in this movie are never afraid of vampires. They're just like, you're a vampire. Ew. Right, but he's so quick to get over that. He is, but only because Michael is reaching out to him like, I'm your brother. I'm not going to hurt you. This is not what I want. Please help me. I need your help. Right. And the lesson learned being that the family was there all along. And you're yes. not lost. You've just, you've had each other this whole time. Well, yeah, yes. yeah. But I think it's more about that you don't need the full nuclear family to be a family. Absolutely. Right? You, you can have an abnormal family and it will be fine. I mean, they've got to kill the guy who's trying to become their father. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, luckily, luckily, Grandpa has a car covered in stakes that fly into vampires' hearts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a little convenient. <laughs> This movie's ridiculous. So garlic doesn't work, but holy water works fine. Yeah. Right? I love when they steal the holy water from the church. That's so great. That is such a funny scene. (laughs) So smart. This movie is such a weird tone. It's great. It does. So one more little bit of trivia before we compare the two films is that the the super jack saxophone player at the beginning of the movie. Oh my God. Was Tina Turner's saxophone player. (laughs) <laughs> that scene is the most homoerotic scene in the entire film. I don't like whatever to anything else. A man covered in oil, gyrate, just like, oh, yeah. oh my God, on stage, like moving with the saxophone, straight up just like, <laughs> got, I mean, just humping the air, you know? That, that's also that's also the scene where Michael sees Star, right? Mm-hmm. This is why I read Michael as straight, because he's not interested in the saxophone player. He's interested in Star. Totally. Sam is interested well, in the saxophone player. I read, yeah. Uh, yeah, I definitely read Sam as at 
somewhat queer questioning. Yeah, it's but all I think, over the movie. I think, I think yeah. Star is just there to be the explicit sex draw, but I think the subtext is actually drawn to the culture that's represented by the Lost Boys rather Absolutely. than he's drawn to Star in particular. So that saxophone is going on and gyrating and stuff, like that's really what he's into. Star is just the placeholder. We need a little sex appeal to appease the audiences, blah, blah, blah. You Definitely. Know. I love the scene where Max comes over for dinner and the Frog Brothers are fucking with him. <laughs> right? And then all of a sudden, apparently if you invite a vampire in, none of the shit works on him. He casts a reflection, which... Yeah, is that lore? No, no. they just made that up. Just, what? It doesn't even like apply because Michael's obviously invited into his own house. How come his, his reflection is like half there? Yeah. I'd also like to ask right. in Fright Night why Evil Ed is able to get into the house after he becomes a vampire. Yeah. No one is there to invite him in. Well, I think he's been invited in before, but yeah, you're right. Maybe, but they, they in <laughs> both these films, they they ruin that, they break that rule, right? They they both address that rule, and they say yeah. a vampire needs to be invited in. They're not well, invited Lost in. Lost Boys changes the rule. In Fright Night and Classical Lord, a vampire literally cannot enter if you don't invite them. Yes. In Lost Boys, it's just that they gain additional powers that help them hide if you invite them in. And it's yeah. implied that there's some other stuff going on as well. You probably can't kill them or something if you invite them in. Yeah, but they do bring up, I think the Frog Brothers bring it up. It's not to invite them in. I mean, Max also brings it up, but he says the rule that you just said. But the Frog Brothers also say, like, you, a vampire can't enter if you don't invite right. them Right. The Frog Brothers don't know the rule. They, they claim they do, but it's like, oh, didn't you ever hear that you can't invite a vampire in? They're like, yeah, we we know that rule. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's also it's also applied to. How do you not know that rule? <laughs> the, the rules change a lot from the traditional ones. Like they're yeah. like throwing garlic on them, it doesn't work. But then they spray them. That's really funny when they throw them. In the he drinks a goblet of blood instead of getting bitten. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's in a lot of Rock vampire roll, lore now. That's kind of like taking the place of just getting bitten to turn into one. Like I think the whole Anne Rice yeah. vampires, you have to drink their blood too. Yes. I don't know what started that. So uh, now that we've gotten into the sociopolitical sphere of both these films, how does it compare? So one thing I think is interesting is that because I read Sam as a gay, 100%, mm-hmm. yeah. um, he has a, a poster of uh, Rob Lowe shirtless. Yes. Not shirtless, but in a crop top on his closet door. It's so and sexy. he's afraid of the closet monster. And he, he, he's in the bathtub singing how he ain't got no man. <laughs> yeah. And I think all of this so plays that, unlike in Fright Night, where Charlie Brewster ends the movie in a heterosexual relationship, Sam doesn't do that. Sam remains equally gay-coded throughout the film and never questions it, is never bothered by it. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's an argument to be made that maybe Fright Night kind of in the end heterosexuality wins and in the lost boys that is not the case that that isn't really what the movie is critiquing that it's ultimately right. like no we don't have a problem that they're gay the problem is that they're killing people uh but what do you guys think well i like i said i don't think fright night ends on uh, him in a heterosexual relationship because he's still drawn to this otherness during his sexualness like because the aliens show up and i know it's just like a gag but if we're going to look at it through that lens, we, we shouldn't ignore that whenever he's about to get it on, something more interesting is going on, right? But then he closes the blinds and has sex with her. We think. Maybe. <laughs> Devin, what do yeah. you think? I, I think I agree with you that queerness is not the A line of this movie, right? I think it's a part of the films, but I think like ultimately both these movies are about family. Maybe, maybe Fright Night a little bit more about like sexuality, but not so much about like Am I queer? Am I straight? Or that whole thing, I think it's more of like, am I ready to have sex or am I not? I think like for the Lost Boys, the lesson is kind of just like stick with the family that you've got. Don't try to fuck with it. Like, and if your family is vagabond, hippie, motorcycle riding vampires, then like, great. Don't try to bring in a human mother to like fix them. Otherwise, they're all going to die. And like, if your family is fatherless and has a crazy grandfather who like, fucks the next door neighbor widow, like, that's fine. Don't try to like, go find family with a group of vampires. Like, <laughs> There is like, don't try to like, get the quote unquote norm. What you Especially have. Especially for that good. era. Especially for yeah. that era. Yeah, 
I agree with Devin. I, I think queerness is definitely um, one of the big themes of these movies, but I think the broader theme is is a critique of the traditional family structure and that value, that norm that we like attribute to prosperity. Mm-hmm. The, the idea is that you need the nuclear family to be prosperous, but these movies are like, no, that can actually cause a lot of problems, in particular if the father figure's a psychopathic killer or whatever. <laughs> Sometimes you're better off leaving it alone. But but then it also plays with the themes of like sexual allure, right? Mm-hmm. Which sexual seduction and vampirism are just go hand in hand. Right, um, one in the same. I definitely agree with you guys. I, I guess for me, the way I'm looking at it is that it's those are two sides of the same coin. Hmm. That especially in this era, homosexuality was seen as an attack on the traditional uh family which is complete bullshit to be clear right uh there's absolutely nothing wrong with homosexuality whatsoever and you can have a completely normal family that has gay people in it and that's not a big (laughs) deal and that is something that the lost boys is arguing which goes against the wide belief at the time there was a huge push against uh gay people especially as a result of the aids epidemic Mm -hmm. people were making ridiculous claims that aids was brought on by god to punish gay people which is completely freaking absurd and ridiculous and they formed the moral majority they called themselves they a lot of people credit that for electing reagan who completely ignored aids uh, mm-hmm. we're allowed to get political, right? I think we've made our politics clear. I think we've, <laughs> I think we've talked about Reagan enough on this podcast. Yeah, I think we've, we've made fun of Reagan in pre... We, we've criticized Reagan in previous episodes. I think people know by now that I really don't like Reagan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think just being a John Carpenter fan, you kind of have to be critical of Reaganomics, right? <laughs> Who knew? President decides to ignore an epidemic and let people die of it because he doesn't care and he doesn't want to affect his ratings and the people who are dying or people he doesn't consider worthy good thing that hasn't happened again oh yeah but this is an aside i was just gonna say for people interested in this issue i learned a lot from the the newer documentary scream queen which david's friend actually directed that's about the actor who also contracted aids and has since recovered mostly played in uh freddy's revenge the freddy krueger movie too which was actually a largely homophobic script about the struggle of dealing with your sexuality. Now, that movie came out, what, 92? No, no, in the 80s. No, no that, that was way was, later. Yeah, that was like 86 or something. 86. That Eight, came out before 85 or 86. Yeah, yeah it's, right in the, it's right in this time period. That was going right in with it. And that actor was so devastated when that movie portrayed him as a gay character because he thought it would ruin his career. He actually left the acting business. But I think there's an important thing to add here that even when these movies, especially Freddy's Revenge, and I think to some extent Fright Night has a similar thing where he's repressing his sexuality and that's what the movie wants him to do. But in all of these cases, I'm not LGBT myself, but I know that the LGBT community has heavily embrace these movies Mm -hmm. including nightmare 2 that they were like oh there is gayness on the screen this is amazing this doesn't happen in this period fright night is like oh yeah the vampires are gay and they're evil okay but they're fun and you want to be the vampires yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) this this is a this is an area that came up actually in leprechaun the conversation we had a few weeks ago that representation need not be perfect but as long as representation exists it's it's a plus and the same idea was with the leprechaun it was just some sort of positive representation of irish culture even though it wasn't the most positive one but at least it's there and like for this you could say these are not the best representations of the lgbtqa plus community but at least it's n representation it's not going unnoticed yeah it's two steps forward one step back yeah exactly but what i was going to say was i think our argument that michael is probably a straight man and seeing uh, a straight man contract aids on screen i think that's what is so important to this film too david going off of everything that you were just saying about how like how they only saw gay people as the other and aids affecting the other when like no 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 no. this isn't just their issue like it's everyone's issue (laughs) please like Mm -hmm. it includes us we need we need to have this conversation all together we are all affected by this don't just shove them in a corner and say okay 
Yeah, God and I think that's a large part of why I've been reading his character as straight, because most of the evidence that he is a gay allegory, I think, also just applies to him contracting AIDS, and that doesn't mean he's gay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Sam, S- S- Sam is like disgusted by him when he finds out he's a vampire. It's like that's how people reacted when you got AIDS. It's like, oh, I don't want to get that thing. Stay away from me. In Scream Queen, Mark Patton talks about how he couldn't get roles after that, or he was basically outed as gay by critics. And then mm. he couldn't get roles anymore because actresses didn't want to kiss him because they thought they would get AIDS. Oh, my Lord. And he yeah. didn't have oh, AIDS gross. until later. That's gross, man. It's also interesting that in The Lost Boys, uh, if you read Sam's character is gay, it could also be this ostracism that happens within the gay community. Because he thinks, oh, Michael, you're a shit-sissing bloodsucker. That doesn't mean, oh, you're gay. It means, oh, you have AIDS. But coming yeah. from a gay guy saying that to him. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Which is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I think you're actually changing my mind here because I didn't view the movie as that. Now I think you guys have convinced me. I think that Michael's character is more about that. I think this movie is more allegorical about the AIDS epidemic. Uh, more so than Fright Night. Did you just say Gades? The AIDS epidemic. Oh, I totally heard Gades. <laughs> Did you say Gades? <laughs> I, I, I do. Probably. <laughs> I do want to apologize. I've been saying gayness a lot, and I think it is a little more um, queerness. I think the 80s is affecting my brain right yeah. now. It's worth mentioning regarding Lost Boys that Schumacher, you know, the director of the movie, is himself a gay man and has literally said, like, oh, yeah, I put gay stuff into all my movies. Like, he's yeah, just yeah. out or queer stuff into all my movies which is um, why we need to have more representation behind the camera he also said he slept with 30 to 20 to yes. thirty thousand uh, men which let's is yes not frankly talk about no that. that's that's no not... i find this quote, but he's very open about that and it's just oh that's, this quote i think is so insane. interesting when you look at it in the context of the movies um he talks about how he's this is a quote from like the past 10 years or something. It says, now a lot of gay people are getting married. They're adopting or having children. There wasn't any of that when I was young. If you went to a gay bar and there were 200 men in there and you used and you said, okay, who wants to have a little house with a white picket fence and a dog and a child? Raise your hands. Or who wants to get laid tonight? The concept of a lovely suburban life raising children was not a high concept. We all had to look at sex not only as it could kill you, but how reckless we had become as a culture is his response to the AIDS epidemic. He says, if a friend who is not promiscuous was the first person I knew that had it. I think he was diagnosed in 1983, and I was extremely promiscuous, so I thought if he has it, I must have it quadrupled. I went to get tested. I was sure I had it. I was planning my death. In those days, the test had to be done by the Centers for Disease Control. So it was sent away and took three weeks or more until you got the answer. The doctor called me and said, no, everything's fine. It's clean, Joel. I went and got tested again. Hmm. That's really interesting. I still think some blood tests take that long to get the results from. I, I think the point of it is more that he was obsessed by this. He was terrified of AIDS. Yes. That he was planning his death. Like, how could that not affect how he's portraying this in this movies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's perpetuating the miseducation during the time, right? Mm. I think people get freaked out and they want to blame and they looked for someone to blame. And in this case, in the 80s, it was gay culture. Yes. Yeah. And I, I found two movies in the 80s that had explicitly gay characters and neither of them did very well. They're both extremely obscure now, even if they have some cult following. Whereas in even before that, in the 70s, you had Dog Day Afternoon, you had Midnight Cowboy. These were Oscar nominees and winners, and it just went away. And I think that's this extreme hatred toward gay people that resulted from the Reagan administration and from the AIDS epidemic being blamed on gay people. Movies had to move queerness into subtext. Mm-hmm. They were not able to put it explicitly and still be successful. What were those two movies in the 80s that portrayed gay people the hunger which is also a vampire movie and buddies with my cousin um so, yeah um, I, I think you're right they had to push them into subtext and it it was sort of this cool rebellious thing though that they could put these films in the theater and have millions of people go see them and love them and have no idea <laughs> that they're mm. watching a movie made by a gay man about gay men and about oh, gay yeah. culture 
Like, yeah. hell yes. You know exactly what you're getting the fuck into here. I know, I know. I, I could see some uh, right right winger like sitting in their home being like, told you it was subliminal. They're just flipping out right now, <laughs> punching the wall, punching holes in their wall. 20 years uh, later when they had no idea that. What? That, was so. sub- that movie was gay? Oh my God. <laughs> He's just flipping out. Yeah, you've got Nightmare 2, obviously. And I think part of the appeal of that is also like, you know, the writer and the actor clearly understood this gay subtext, but the producers apparently had no freaking idea and it just That's slipped funny. past them. Uh, yeah. You have The Fly has some themes of AIDS. Uh, mm-hmm. The Thing, which we talked about last week, yes. also can be seen as an AIDS allegory as well, with the blood of the monster going around and passing between all the different people. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there, yeah. there seems to be this theme of Curse of the Blood in some 80s horror. Uh, bro, bro, how cool was it in The Lost Boys when they're hanging from the ceiling? They had a big coffin. Yo. I thought oh, that was so, so cool. cool. And that, that that's when, uh, what's his name? One of the Frog Brothers is like, vampire humor. I forget what the joke said before. But that's that's, that's exactly it. <laughs> oh, vampire. Just a little vampire humor. <laughs> then he goes, Rob, not say, all bloodsuckers die the same way. Some, some implode, some explode. Rob, can you say the blood-sucking Brady Bunch? The blood-sucking Brady Bunch. Fuck yes. <laughs> You're so Can you good. say we're fighters for truth, justice, and the oh, American okay. way? We're fighters for truth, justice, and the American way. <laughs> I, I feel like you, you just kind of lower your voice and talk as raspy as possible, like you're Michael Bean. You, you do it like, really well. You sound Sarah really Connor. Like Michael Bean's a little like higher. It's like Sarah Connor. No, I could probably. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Anyway, I think. Uh, do you guys have any like last comments? Yes, I want to give one shout out before we wrap things up here. David sent us this amazing podcast episode about Fright Night um, made mm-hmm. by the podcast Horror Queers. I highly recommend giving it a listen. It's a talk into Fright Night by actually LGBTQIA plus people and peaches christ who is amazing and you should just listen to her on everything but it, it does a great insight into the film and and the queerness of the film now it's time for my favorite part of the episode rob's bone reviews where we take each of the movies and we rate them on one through four bones with bones and a half in between starting with devin shepherd what are the reviews you give to fright night and the lost boys oh okay i um am gonna give fright night a two bone review which is still good it's, it's still good. I enjoyed it, I think. Well, actually, no, that's not good. That's okay. Yeah. Two and a half a, is good. It was okay. It was okay. Um, The script is not my favorite. Uh, really? I, I like Fright Night so much. It, I, look, <laughs> look, look. Peter Vincent, love him. Will die for him. Amazing, amazing role. Uh, The script was run in three weeks and it shows. That's that's my review of that film. But I still enjoyed it. Uh, Lost Boys, I'm going to say two and a half. I think... It's my first viewing of it, and I did see it very much as a family film, and I think that's what sets me back a little bit because I didn't expect it to be a family film. So I'm excited to watch it again, and it will probably go up, but for right now, two and a half bones. Wow. I will give Fright Night three and a half bones. Uh, My review of that film is that it was written in three weeks, and that's extremely impressive because it's a really great script with (laughs) amazing performances and uh, brilliant effects, and it's just ridiculous ridiculously fun <laughs> and that that freaking dance club scene is like so corny and it should not work it goes on for so long and it's just like mesmerizing oh, no. and i think that's a testament to the actors that they give such great performances like you can see this just horror on amy's face as she's like oh fuck i this guy is a vampire. Okay. <laughs> um, and it's it's so great. Um, Lost Boys, I'll give three stars. I love it a lot more this time than I did previously. It's such a weird tone that it goes in so many different directions and it, it, just, it just works really well. It's a lot of fun. These movies are fun. That's all it comes down to. These movies are freaking fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. David, I agree with you. These movies are just a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, if you to wrap them both up, I give both these movies three bones. Uh, I think I might like Fright Night slightly more just because it has better special effects. Because the ending special effects of uh, Lost Boys are cool, but there's no werewolf. 
devolving into a dying kid in a guy's arms. Like, that is so fucking awesome, man. But anyway, back to the topic at hand. I give both movies uh, three bones. I really enjoyed them both. And like David, this is my second viewing of The Lost Voice. And I saw it the first time when I was maybe 10, and I didn't really get it. In fact, the only parts I remembered was the train scene and when Kiefer Sutherland dies and all the light leaves his body. But I love the one-liners. I like the whole tone of the movie, and I think it's just really fun. It's the kind of movie I could put on any time it's on. I would just sit there and watch it or stand there and watch it, whatever is your cup of tea. And, uh, you know, Fright Night, Fright Night's just cool. What do you do if you're 15 and your neighbor's a vampire? What do you do? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, well, that's going to wrap us up. I'm Rob Asercha, and with me are my co-hosts, Devin Shepard and David B. Jacobs. And to all, I bid you adieu.